of God again and go to Acts chapter number four this morning, Acts chapter number four, and we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 28 in our 10 o'clock hour this morning. We were looking at Acts four verses 23 through 24, uh, dealing with the report of Peter and John going back to their own company back to their fellow believers and reporting um, all that the uh, Sanhedrin had said to them, all the threatenings, all the warnings, and how they went back to their own company and they proclaimed what had happened and then they went to prayer and to praise. And so what takes place now, beginning here uh, in verse number 25, is a continuation of that prayer. Uh, we, we last left off this morning how they had prayed to a sovereign God. Those words in verse 24, Lord, thou art God, thou art the sovereign God, thou art the authority over all. And they go on in verse 25, and we'll read down through verse 28. It says, who by the mouth of thy servant, David hath said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done." Notice there is an emphasis and the use of the word against that is mentioned three times in those verses. We see, first of all, there in verse 26, gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then in verse 27, against thy holy child, Jesus. What we have been presented before us is what we could simply refer to as the rage against Christ. These words, these verses are emphasizing the reality of the wickedness and the depravity of men's hearts apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God in salvation. Men left to their own depravity, left to their own wickedness, will rage against Christ. Rage is a word that is often hard to define how bad is it? What kind of, what are we speaking of when we think about rage? Are we talking about just fits of anger or are we talking about something much more? Are we talking about not only fits of anger, but actually taking action against? Well, really it's both. This rage against Christ or the rage against his Christ shows us that this was very much on the minds of this first century church. This first century church that was now gathered together in prayer and praise, they were acknowledging the sovereign God and they have acknowledged that this God has created all things, he's in control of all things, he's before all things, and what comes to their mind is not just a random thought, but a psalm. And so the question that's being asked in chapter in verse 25, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things, is the text from Psalm 2. And that psalm is what gives us a great picture of what the mind of rulers and those who are left without Christ will do. 
I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 2. It's not a long psalm, but I think it's appropriate for us to read this psalm because this is what's on the mind of this praying church. And you'll see that that question is the very first verse of the psalm. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. What a psalm to come to the minds of this first century church. What an amazing thought to come to their minds because Psalm 2 is what's referred to as a great messianic psalm. And to now appear here so early in the book of Acts speaks volumes as to the importance of not only the situation that was at hand for that church, but also what is even the conditions of the day and age in which we live. Psalm 2, we could define it as a record of human rebellion. It records the rebellion of man. It records the rejection of God. It records the rage that is present against Christ. But it also records God's response to it. You see, we deal with rebellion and we deal with rejection and we deal with rage against God. But our comfort and our hope comes from the promise of God's response to that rage, to that rejection, to that rebellion. You see that the question that's being asked in the prayer in Acts chapter 4 matches almost identical, if not identical, to verse 1 in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This speaks of the kings of the earth taking a stand, rulers of the earth gathering together, receiving counsel from one another with the intent of being against the Lord a being against the Christ, being against the anointed one, being against the God of this world. In that psalm, the leaders of the, the rulers or the leaders of those nations go on to say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us cast away anything that holds us to this God. They are saying just as the Sanhedrin is saying in Acts chapter 4 when they had Peter and John standing before them, we will not have this man. We will not have this Jesus ruling over us. We will not have his authority. We will not bow down to him. We will not have him be our king. 
And much like they said when Jesus was brought by Pilate and was brought before the people and instead of crying out to release him, they instead cried out for Barabbas to be released and they said, crucify Christ. There is this reality. This is the very essence of sin. Rage is the essence of sin. Man in his depravity rages against Christ. You might be here today and you might say, I've never repented of my sins. I've never trusted in Christ. And it might be harsh for me to say this to you, but you are at this moment, you are raging against Christ. You say, I don't feel rage. I don't feel anger. But we, man left in his depravity, all rage against Christ. We are the enemies of the cross. We are the enemies of Christ. We want nothing to do with him. And apart from the regenerated work of the Spirit, our hearts would remain hardened and unyielding. But God, who is rich in mercy. If we are in Christ today and we are no longer raging against his Christ, it is because we have been saved by glorious sovereign grace. But we should not be responded, we should not be uh, surprised when rulers and kings and nations rage against Christ. We should not be surprised that our own nation is raging against Christ. We should not be surprised at the rebellion that we're seeing. This is what mankind left to himself will do. And what everybody in this room would do if you were left in your state in which you were born. But God. This God responds to this rage, not in some sort of uh, 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 confusion. The Bible actually says there in Psalm 2 that he laughs at their rage. He's not laughing because he finds it funny. He's laughing because they cannot do anything to dethrone him. They cannot do anything to make Jesus Christ no longer the Messiah. They cannot fight against him. So these verses are dealing with people coming together and raging against this Lord. It is the, the person who is without Christ today who in their own heart is saying today, I will not have you be my Lord and my God. I will not have you rule over me. You can be someone else's God. You can be somebody else's Savior, but you will not be my Lord. In the Old Testament Psalm, we have an expression of what sin really is. How does sin manifest itself? It manifests itself in rebellion, rejection, and rage, alliteration intended. All three of those things clearly show what sin does. It puts us and leaves us in a state of rebellion. So why do Peter, John, and this first century church quote this psalm? Why is this what came to their mind? Because this was relevant to what the Sanhedrin was doing. This is exactly what those ecclesiastical rulers were doing. Remember, they told them, you are now from this point on never to preach, never to teach, never to speak about Christ again. They were being told, we will not talk about this man. That's rage. Here were the religious rulers of the day, the Sanhedrin, saying, we want nothing to do with this Christ. The Sanhedrin, although the religious leaders, are raging. They're rejecting. They are just exactly what Psalm 2 is talking about. 
So as they went back to their own company, this Peter and John, now they're saying exactly the same thing. They have this Sanhedrin who is refusing to accept or, or be in support of this Christ. Remember what Peter and John had done. They had done nothing more than healed the lame man in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. They gave glory to Jesus. And he said, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this man now stands before you whole. He's healed. Sanhedrin of all people should have known spiritual things. They should have known. They should have understood that this is the promised Jesus of the, of the Old Testament. This is the God. This is the God-man. As spiritual leaders, they had a responsibility to seek these things out. But what was their response instead? We forbid you to speak that name. Again, I don't know the timing. I don't know when it'll happen. It may not be in our generation. It may be our great-grandchildren, depending on what age you are. But there will come a day in this nation where we will be forbidden to speak in the name of Christ. I believe that. Now, we can disagree on that, and you can say, I don't think it'll ever get that way, and that's totally fine. But my biblical conviction is, is we will see this someday, where churches will have to say, what are we going to do in response to rulers and kings raging against us? And we saw this morning how this church responded. They didn't respond in panic. They didn't respond in trying to rebel against everything. They went to prayer. They began to pray to the sovereign God who was in control over even these rulers, over these nations. And you'll see again in that psalm what we see happening is God is responding to the pride and the arrogance of man. Even right now, there are rulers and world leaders, kings, who are taking up arms against God. There are entire governments who are right now making it illegal to speak in the name of Christ. Not just a misdemeanor, but punishable in some cases by death. It's already happening in this world. It's already on our doorsteps. But these rulers and these nations, just like the Sanhedrin, do we think for a moment that God trembles in fear because of what they're doing? Do we think for a moment that God is bothered or even the least bit threatened by what they are threatening to do? The answer is no. The Bible says there in Psalm 2 that he responds. It says he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord shall have them in derision. In other words, God is saying, do they really think that they can break my bonds? Do they really think they can dethrone me? Do they really think they have the power to stop the kingdom of God? And then he points out, the psalmist points out in verse 6, he's pointing to Christ. This is part of the messianic psalm that this is. He says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You see, it's obvious why the early church thought of this psalm, why it chose to pray and to praise God on this occasion. Here the Sanhedrin is saying, we will get rid of Jesus. We're going to kill him. We're going to take away his influence. But God says, I've raised up Jesus from the dead. I've brought him back to the very throne room of God. He is seated in heavenly places, King of kings, Lord of lords. These earthly rulers are now starting down the very same path of the disciples. You can't preach in that name any longer. 
But the disciples simply declare and reply, God is going to exalt his son, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Brethren, that's the kind of attitude we need to have this morning. No matter what a ruler or a king or a nation does, they cannot dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I don't know. I'm seeing the rage isn't, it's intensifying in our country. I would agree with you. But Jesus Christ is not, slip, he's not losing any hold on the throne. God is not losing any ground in his sovereignty. No matter how the nation rages, Christ is not going to be dethroned. And if you sit here today in your own rebellion and you say, I will not have him to be the Lord of my life, you are not going to prevent Jesus Christ from being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we see really these three R's again that we see in this, this passage. We see the rage against Christ. We see the rebellion against Christ. And we see ultimately the rejection against Christ. But that word against really gives us the insight as to exactly what is at the heart of this rebellion. So Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Now, if we go back to our text, you'll notice, it, again, they, they mention David, and they say, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, standing in opposition, standing in a furious manner. But as we've already seen, this is all vanity. This is all being done for naught. That whole psalm, as we've already seen this morning, belongs to the Messiah. And no matter how intense the efforts are, man will never be able, again, to remove Christ and to remove the authority of the name of Christ. Notice it says, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. We could go down the line throughout Scripture and think about the, those who have raged and rebelled against God himself. We can think about the Gentiles who were once separate from the people of God. We can think about the Pharisees and Pilate and the council, the Roman soldiers. All of these men raged against Christ. Think about how Christ was taken. He was seized in a furious way. He was taken as a malefactor. He was treated as if he was guilty of the worst of societal crimes. Yet what had Christ done? He knew no sin. There was no sin within him. And yet the voices got louder and louder and louder. Crucify him. Romans and Jews alike We'll have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man. Rage is not something new, brethren. This is not new what we're seeing. We say things are worse than they've ever been. We're often guilty of being victim of the present. Things are always worse when it deals with us now. There's always been rage against Christ. There's been rage even since the very beginning of time. Man rages against Christ. And again, the rage is not against the idea or the notion of God. Most people are not even offended by a God. 
what they're offended by, what they rage against, is against Christ. They rage against Christ because the name Christ immediately puts the sinner into the reality that they are, in fact, a sinner. No doubt when they, they rage to put Jesus Christ upon the cross, it crossed their mind that they had put him to death, that that was the end. But yet what they were doing was carrying out the very plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. They thought they'd put a stop. They thought they would put a stop to the doctrine, and yet they were not able to stop it. He rose from the dead. He rose in victory. He rose in victory over all his enemies. And even today, the gospel is spreading in extraordinary ways. You know, I think, again, we're victims often of we don't see things and we think nothing's happening. We look out into the world and we think it just seems like the gospel's losing its power. It seems like God is, is, is losing touch. God is, is losing control, that it's slipping through his hands. Brother, no such thing is happening. The gospel is bringing forth fruit. People are being converted. People are being added to the kingdom of God. Even though the rage is increasing, the gospel is still going forth. There is this rage against Christ. Verse 26 really tells us that this rage is leading to a rebellion against Christ. Ultimately, we see rebellion all throughout Scripture. Specifically mentioned, the kings of the earth stood up. There are various kings in the Old Testament, various kings in the New Testament. We could look at Pilate. We could look at Herod. They were all representatives of Caesar. And Caesar was the one that they, we would, they said, we will have no man but Caesar. They stood up in rebellion, hostile against this Christ, opposed the Messiah. And notice it says that this was not an individual effort. The rulers were gathered together. I've mentioned to us over the last few weeks that Sanhedrin, that ecclesiastical council that Peter and John were standing before, most commentators believe it numbered 70 to 100 people who were all in agreement that what Peter and John were doing should not happen anymore. 70 to 100 of the religious leaders of the day were gathered together against this Christ, counseling one another, conferencing together, what are we going to do to stop the spread of the name of Jesus Christ? I truly believe they thought that warnings would be enough to stop it. When they sent Peter and John, they let them go, and they said, we command you no longer preach in the name of Christ. There's a part of them that probably thought that's the end of it, but it's not. They continue to preach, and we're going to see later that Peter and John, this is not the last time they're going to be arrested for preaching this name. So there is this rebellion that is collaborative. It's together. It's not just a single opposition. Brethren, again, let's bring this into our real life. This is, this is not um, unlike what we're seeing today. Uh, we are seeing an intentional gathering together that is evidence of a rebellion against Christ. Gatherings that call themselves churches are rebelling against Christ. Places that say we are a church are showing evidence that they are no such thing. 
Churches are raging against Christ. Rulers are raging against Christ. It's more prevalent than what we're, we care to actually acknowledge. But again, notice, there's the, worse, the use of that word against. There's two ways it's mentioned, against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, it's key that we understand this because they're making, there's a distinction here. Against the Lord has the, the meaning of against Jehovah, the Father of Christ, who was the one who sent him, who was the one that anointed him. And what was being done against the Christ was also being done against God the Father. And against his Christ tells us, what does that tell us? That tells us it's directly against the Son. From his birth, he's been raged against. Even after his death, even after his death, his burial, his resurrection, he's being raged against. Mankind is almost determined to defeat and to destroy this Christ. So it's not only rage, it's rebellion, but it's also rejection. Look at verse 27. For of a truth. And don't miss that. For of a truth. What this means is, is this is so clear and so defined that we can't deny it and say it's not happening. Of a truth, this rebellion, this rage, and this rejection is obvious. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus. This is, again, an intentional, cannot be denied. Just like that Sanhedrin could not deny that that man had been healed. The problem wasn't with the healing. The problem was what Peter and John were giving credit to God, especially Jesus Christ, for healing. They hated the fact that Christ was the one being given the glory. Now, every believer here today, if you're truly in Christ, we don't understand this kind of rage against such a beautiful Savior, do we? This is something that we think, how can a world rage against the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us? This is what the individual's heart is like when they are left to themselves. This is what we would be if Christ had not redeemed us. This is what our attitude would be towards the world. This is what we would be doing had we not been gloriously saved. And that's what brings us to continually rejoice and give God the praise that we were not left in our wicked condition. All of this is an aggravation. What you see happening here is what's being laid out in Scripture. We go from rage to rebellion to rejection. This is aggravation of the sin. The sin goes worse and worse and worse. And yet there cannot be denied that Jesus Christ is the promised Savior. Notice it says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. This church is praying everything that's true. They're praying that God is sovereign. They're praying the truth that the heathen has raged, their rejection. But of a truth which cannot be denied, Christ was anointed to be this prophet. He was anointed to be this Messiah. Prophet, priest, and king from eternity past. Jesus Christ today is our mediator. It is to Christ that we pray and able to get to the Father. 
It is through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are actually even able to even stand before a holy God. Apart from Christ, no man can stand. Christ was anointed. He was approved. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But then notice that the church also specifically mentions names. Verse 27 again, but of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So make no mistake about it. They're gathered together to rage against Christ. But here's the beauty of where this text is going. You have Herod, you have Pontius Pilate, you have the Gentiles, you have Roman soldiers, you have the people of Israel, including the Pharisees, the common people. Jews and Gentiles alike were raging and the kings were gathered together. To be gathered together doesn't just mean they gathered in a room. It means that they were in, they were in consent. They all agreed that what we should do is mock, scourge, and crucify this holy, sinless Christ. Now here's where it really gets good. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. Now, brethren, if you're in Christ, you take great comfort and great heart in what's being said there. Because no matter how intense the rage and the rejection and the rebellion gets, these men, these wicked men, were carrying out the very purposes and plans of God, even though they didn't know it. You see, the sovereignty of God is what we lay our head at night and rest in. We rest in the sovereignty of God. We rest not that God is sovereign and in control of a few things. He's even using the rage and the rebellion against his Christ to carry out his purposes. Now again, let me just challenge us. How often have we found ourselves just, even if it's just slightly, failing to acknowledge God's sovereignty? And for a moment, we watch a newsreel or we watch a clip and we say, just for a fleeting moment, we think, is God losing control? And the answer is no. He's never lost control. He's never once been outmaneuvered. He's never once been outcounseled. He's never once been defeated. Whatever they're doing, they are doing what was determined beforehand that is to be done. You know the cross and everything that happened with the cross was determined by God to be done just as it was done. Judas Iscariot was not some random individual. It was determined that this is the means. Wicked men would put Jesus Christ on a cross in their rage and while doing so, accomplishing the salvation of God's people. You realize what's being said? Your salvation was accomplished as a direct result of wicked hands crucifying a sinless Savior. That's why we say very carefully, the cross of Jesus Christ did not make your salvation possible. It actually accomplished it. 
It accomplished it. It didn't say, here, consider this truth. It saved to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. Now, that gathering together of all these rulers, even the ones in Psalm 2, I can guarantee you they didn't say this. How do we do all these wicked things to ensure that God's purposes get carried out? But guess what was being carried out? God's purposes. The more ferocious they get, the more wicked they get, the more God's purposes are being carried out. It was not their intention to elevate Christ in any way. It was not their intention to fulfill the decrees and the purposes of God. They are raging because their lust for blood is so strong and so intent, their design was to kill a man, to kill the Savior. They accomplished it. They thought they killed him. But the Bible says he gave up the ghost. They didn't kill him. He, at the appointed hour, gave up his spirit. All the rage, all the malice against him. Everything being done according to the providential hand of God. Every conspiracy, every conference, everything they planned to do, God in the eternal everlasting counsel had determined that by his hand, the grace and the favor of God is still going to be upon my people. Brethren, think about that just for a minute. If you can't think on anything else today, think about the beauty of understanding that wicked hands crucified our Lord and by crucifying him carried out the very act of redemption. Remember when Joseph was talking about his brothers and he told them that you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good? Joseph, as a type of Christ, was pointing even to this event. Wicked hands will try their best to dethrone this Christ. And it'll never happen. The more they rage, the more they're carrying out the decrees and the counsel of God. Now, this does not make, as some erroneously think, does not make God the author of sin. Man is still responsible for his own sinful actions. God doesn't take away or remove the liberty of their wills and acting. They are acting according to who they are. And yet through that, God has accomplished, accomplished and is accomplishing his purposes. Someone might say, they may, get, they may get bogged down in the details, the circumstances, and they may say, but the apostles were put in jail. Yes, they were put in jail. Some might say, well, they were threatened with death. They were put in chains. Yes, they were put in chains. But they were threatened with death. They were not only threatened, most all the apostles died as a result of proclaiming the name of Christ. Some did die. Christians are dying all over this world every single day by wicked hands. And yet we cannot be mistaken by even thinking for once that these things are happening outside of the hands of a sovereign God. Now, do I understand all that? Absolutely not. There are mysterious works of the secret will of God, the things that we just do not have the capability. It'd be one of those things that even if we were told, 
our humanity would not be able to comprehend it. You hear people say often, I, I really want to know everything there is to know. You couldn't, you, you are not capable of handling everything that God is doing. So what are we told to do? We're told to trust the sovereignty of God. We're told to trust in the reality of Christ's throne and the ruling and the reigning of Christ, not only now, but for all of eternity, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the wicked did what they had done, it was in the, the council that was determined before to be done. Some might also say, what happens as things get worse? As I mentioned to you, things have always been this way. During our prayer meeting, we are, we are every Sunday, we're making mention of somebody's name from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And every one of those accounts is a demonstration of man's rage against the Christ. But there's a human dying that name that we won't forget today, that young William Hunter. Some of you have no idea who William Hunter is. Get to Fox's Book of Martyrs and read the account of William Hunter. 19 years old. The rage against him and one of the main things that he did is he refused to take communion during a Catholic Mass. Landed him in prison. He was given the opportunity to reject Christ, recant what you believe. He said, I will not do any such thing. He was burned at the stake. Was that a rage against William Hunter or was that a rage against Christ? That's a rage and a rebellion and a rejection of Christ, clear as day. Yet what gives these people who have been burned at the stake, who have experienced execution, what gives them the grace to be able to stand in those moments? the grace of God. It's not human strength. It isn't, it isn't standing on your own power and your own courage. It's standing on the reality of who this Christ is. That's what a regenerated heart is. It understands that God is sovereign even in these moments. And what I can't get over, almost every account that you read in the Fox's Book of Martyrs speaks so much about their joy that was set before them, knowing that the moment that they drew their last breath, they would be in the presence of this Savior that died for them. Brother, we're told often that we need to get our eyes off the world, get our eyes off of the things, and get our eyes off of all the struggles and the trials, because one day these are all going to be over. But again, that's not even the only reason we look forward to being in glory, because our struggles are over. As we're learning from the church, in the first century, they were not praying to remove the persecution. They were not praying to remove even the threats. They were praying, God, give us the grace to go through it. Brother, we have never been promised in this world peace and tranquility by the world's standards. See, the reason that we can step out into eternity is not because all of our trials and struggles will be over, but because we're going to see the Christ who died for us. And again, if you could try to even indicate, even in a roundabout sort of way, what eternity is as far as a time, we can't. If we're granted 100 years 
on this earth, it's nothing in comparison of an eternity. It's not even a vapor. It's less than a vapor. It's less than a mist. And not a single one of you today, including myself, we hear this all the time, but we take it for granted. You are not promised this afternoon. You are not promised 30 seconds from now. Are you raging against this Christ? You've heard it over and over and over again. And you still won't come. You still say, I will not have this man rule over me. And yet here Christ, who has died for the sins of His people, this sovereign God who is in charge, Christ is being exalted. Are you raging against Christ Or are you willing to repent of your sin and say, I repent that I am a sinner. I trust and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of my salvation. There is no other way. I said to my wife yesterday, I, I am, I, we have reached that stage of our life. I know some of you have already been here before. So bear with me. And I, don't, I mean this in the, 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 the nicest possible way because this struck me. We got news yesterday that just took my breath away. And the reason it took my breath away is because what we're starting to see happen in our life on a more regular basis is people our own age dying suddenly. I can remember being a child and looking and thinking, well, yes, those people are older. Those people are, they're very old. I remember thinking that 30 and 40 was old. And then you get news and you say, wait a minute, that man, that woman, they're in our our age group. Now suddenly what some of you have been telling me for years that so-and-so, your relative, your family member has died suddenly. Some are starting to tell me, I know more people who've died than are alive. It'll wake you up. If we're not awake, we need to wake up. We need to wake up to the reality of eternity, wake up to the reality that once this body dies, there is no second chance. There is no, then I'll trust Christ. If you die without Christ today, you will die and you will spend an eternity in hell with no hope of being prayed out of there, delivered out of there. It will be for eternity. And it would be because you said, I will not have this Christ rule over me. Christ has never turned away a single soul who's come to Him. Not one. And He will not turn you away. And if you end up in hell, it will not be because Christ rejected you. It will be because you rejected Him. There is nothing keeping you from repenting of your sins right now and trusting Christ as your Savior. There is nothing more beautiful than to know that you are in Christ Jesus for all of eternity. But there's also nothing more horrific than to know that you are without Christ today. Come to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, you know each heart today. You know what we're thinking, you know what we're contemplating. 
You know what we're distracted by. And Father, I plead that today that the Holy Spirit of God is doing a mighty work, not only in believers today, but in those today especially that are without. They are right now outside of the body of Christ. They may not sense it. They may not understand it all. But they are raging against Christ. Father, I pray that we would have the faith, that we would have the boldness of this church, Lord. It was far from perfect. But to have the boldness to proclaim the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of the Scriptures, no matter what comes, and that we would rejoice and proclaim and preach this Christ, even in the face of great opposition, that we would love people enough to tell them the truth, Father, to tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Father, we pray that these truths would settle deep into our hearts, Lord, and that you, through the power of the Spirit, would save whom you will, that you would open blind eyes and allow deaf ears to hear, and that we might rejoice with those who would come to Christ this very day. We thank you and we praise you for all these things. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn book today and we're going to close with the hymn on 286. 286 beneath the cross. 286 in the hymns of grace. Let's stand and sing together. Mm-hmm.